1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: Hey guys, this is the Veteran Shoutout brought to you by HHA USA. Go to HHAUSA.org, check out Operation HHA where they get veterans into the outdoors and people with servants still. So this one's submitted by Tyler Foster. The veteran is Greg Gentry. He was in the army during Operation Desert Storm. He says, "Hey guys, I want to give a close friend of mine a shout out. Greg and I worked together installing residential HVAC systems, and it didn't take long to figure out that both of us love the outdoors and bow hunting. Typically, don't take long to
0: figure that out, but it takes like what ten minutes, five minutes. It's nice to get a buddy that you work with that uh, is in the same stuff, though.
2: He taught me everything I know about HVAC, and now I run a crew of my own. Five years ago, we were doing a duck a duck system in a cross place that was full of black mold." Greg caught a cold, and shortly after, the cough never went away. After countless trips and countless tests at the doctor, he was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis, which basically deteriorates your lungs. So he was immediately placed on a lung transplant list and waited approximately a year and had to quit working in the meantime. He called me one day on my way to work and told me that his lungs were there and that they were going to put them in. He died twice in the operating room, Oh my God. And they put him on a heart monitor for two days. When they took him off the heart monitor, he did great. After long months in the hospital, he was released, but was told he would never work again, so he took his time and spent it in the outdoors. Between pictures of fish and deer, I knew that he was living his life to the fullest. Since then, he has had blood clots in his lungs and has had to have numerous procedures. He was in the hospital for five months, and all the muscle in his legs t- deteriorated, and he has yeah. been in a wheelchair ever since. He's been in rehab for close to a year and took four steps last week. I told him he needed to get those damn things working so we can hit the woods this fall.
0: <laughs> Motivational. Yeah, you got
2: to keep him motivated. So the progress continues. That's what we're going to do. Thanks, guys, and cheers to Greg.
0: Cheers to you, Greg, man. That is Yeah, hopefully it gets better. But get sounds like you're outdoors. on the track back up there, brother, if you're already working. Yeah, it sounds like he's a badass. Yeah, I would that's insane. unstoppable man that's crazy to think like small things that just on like on a job site or whatever mm-hmm. that you might not think is a big deal can really change your life really quick man that's unfortunate to hear but it's good that he's he's okay and he or died he,
2: twice on the operating that terrible.
0: is insane that stuff scares me yeesh well shout out to both of you guys man thanks yeah, for thanks uh, from
2: that tyler and uh, hopefully i'm saying it's t-y-l-o-r
0: oh that's a cool way to spell it that's yeah. all yeah thanks guys appreciate you thank you for that your in. service greg and uh hopefully you got a Good recovery coming up here and hitting the woods. Yeah, thanks for thanks for your service, brother. Yeah, hope to see you back out there chasing some critters around however you gotta get it. Yep. Um and question two for our listeners and people that are submitting veteran shout outs. Do you guys like us throwing the veteran shout outs at the beginning? Something we're trying. We're opening with the veteran shout outs. I think it's just cool. Um do you yep. like it? Do you like to get into the show a little bit before we do it? let us know we're just experimenting we're just kind of having hey, fun here out there. but uh thank you to all, all our veterans and active yeah. military uh submit a veteran shout out working class com. there's a contact tab and there's a veteran shout out form there that you just fill out help doug with his reading and uh pronunciation please, please help him um you engineer, so, not a philosopher so i don't know if that all goes together but uh it works uh, out it sounded good <laughs> all right exactly (laughs) moving on hey guys welcome to the podcast episode 468 sheesh wowzers uh whitetail season's coming in hot i hope you guys are ready i think we're ready been shooting the bows been working on the food plots been fine-tuning some stands Mm -hmm. uh the podcast is presented by elite archery super thankful for that partnership Uh, i'm shooting the remedy which the result 36, the big boy. And Todd's in here. He's not on that elite train yet. Yeah, but what's that about? Yet. We're going to see if we can't get him to take the shootability challenge, which means just go shoot one. You I'm m- in.
3: I'll do that this year.
0: You might really I'll love
3: it. it. You got it.
0: Or you know what? You go to a place, shoot an elite. If you don't buy it there, you go online and use code WCB to order a bow through elite and have it shipped to your local dealer. So I like that. We win twice, brother. And so does your local <laughs> dealer. They get a. Uh, we yeah. all win support yeah. the local biz and you save some money.
3: Who doesn't like that? It's good for everyone.
0: And you get a better shooting bow, <laughs> a better shooting bow than whatever you're shooting. Out. <laughs> um, also the podcast brought to you by big time, uh, bigtime.com, code WCB 2021. I checked my plots, So I planted a, a few weeks ago and then it downpoured for three days straight and then got hot. All my plots are popping and they looking real nice. Real nice. I did two buck brunch plots, two clover plots nice i'm excited doug what about you oh uh
2: let's say i put out the the 360 big time feed for the cameras it's probably gone in probably less than a day now just, just trying to keep up with it, trying to keep up with them <laughs> yeah that's my memory cards, are, over yeah, time yeah, memory cards
0: are running out real fast but it's going great so are you putting those spy point cell cams on them on the feed i am not because eric is and i i'm like you're putting your cell cam on the feeds i mean that's cool
2: dude no i couldn't i could not do that working overtime my bill would be through the roof <laughs>
3: With the unlimited plane
0: yeah yeah i, I would have to yeah. the insider club this is a shared plug that's oh, what's yeah. great about our partners they like, all I'll, kind of mesh together yeah. i'll be in the insider club and just go through my my phone go off 24 7 though that's a problem just do it and you enter to win free stuff if you're in the insider club i do like free like stuff like a truck and a rogue Ridge e-bike. That's something that we got to throw in there. So we are partnered with spy point trail cams and I love them. we got the links; They're affordable. Um, I want to talk about one new camera that I just got that I have to get out here. Um, if you guys are watching this, uh, or listening to this, uh, check out the link S dark. It has like its own little solar panel on the top of it. Oh, nice. So I'm pretty excited to put that out. I'm gonna do a few, it, by the time this launches, like right now, I'm probably doing that work. I'm going to make one more mo on the property I can hunt, switch some cameras around, and then I am off and not coming back till I'm hunting. That's the plan. So the Link S Dark is going to be out there. But if you join the Insider Club, you can win a bunch of points, or points, prizes, and all that stuff through SpyPoint. Um, Rogue Ridge teamed up with them and threw in an e-bike as one of the prizes along with a truck and all, all sorts of other crazy stuff. Um, and the e-bike, I believe it's the... RM 750, which is the one that I ride. Eric rides the RF 750. That's the folding one. They call it the turkey hunting e-bike. The RM 750 is, you know, like your traditional framed bicycle. Um, Tear it up on that thing. Um, Probably a little too hard. Uh, But, no, I'm going to get her ready and riding smooth, ready to move in and out of some stands and entry and exit. Um, dot com. The Halo Series generator is you charge it. It's wireless. It's perfect. it's perfect. You take it with you wherever you need to go. I have been using the, they got So if you go to the halo series, Scentcrestor.com, uh, forward slash shop, they have the plus personal use generator and you actually fill it with water. So like it basically spits out moisture while it runs ozone. Mm. And I've been using that, um, uh, I'll be honest with you. I use it after I poop right now. just testing it out. And uh, the wife has not complained once. Oh, wow. So Not once. She knows better than to, to complain anyway. But I feel like her. Um, she doesn't actually notice it now. You know what I mean? Terrible, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Terrible bump for Scent Crusher there. <laughs> um, but no, they have a ton of options. That's just one of their new items. They have the traditional, you know, the roller bag, the gear bag, the new covert closet. It's basically a roller bag that turns into a Scent Crusher closet for mm-hmm. you if you travel from camp to camp. So check that out and Old Barn Taxidermy. Um it is the place you go when your hunt is over and you're ready to put that critter on the wall. Yep. Um have you been to Old Barn yet
3: Todd? Not yet, but I still need to get uh some work done to some deer that I killed last year, so uh, I got to I got to get on that.
0: You don't have them deer anywhere yet?
3: No, they're sitting in my basement.
0: Are you kidding me? No, I'm serious. Yeah, you got to get you out to Old Barn. Yeah. yeah, you need to take a trip. They're yeah. quick, too. And now yeah. would probably be a good time to do it because if you dropped them off now, you're not waiting in line. Yeah, for sure. So if you got them in, you'd be like basically the first whitetails in line because I'm sure they got – I'm waiting on mine, too, but I took them in late. Uh, I'm waiting on mine, too, but I shot mine, you know, last really late. season. Yeah, but also we we have special treatment, so that either means we get them first or we get them last. Yeah, don't matter to me, not complaining.
3: Yeah, exactly. But
0: you, I, know, I know they're in good hands, so right. don't bother me. No? Now'd be a good time to probably take them in. Honestly, I'm
3: gonna have to look into that.
0: Old Barn Taxidermy, Fort just Madison, Iowa. Two studs. What's <laughs> up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just tell them the podcast sent yeah. Jeez, um, I'm going to talk to Sam about doing the Sam from Old Barn about doing the. Uh, hey, I'm a working class bow hunter listener, and then get entered for a free shoulder mount at the end of the season. So check out Old Barn Taxidermy or a drop-off location for Old Barn Taxidermy near you. Our studio might become an official drop-off location. Mm -hmm. we got to do a little bit of work to make that possible, but it it could happen. So moving along to the episode, hope you enjoyed this. Hope you learned a thing or two about Elk, and thank you for being here. Also, if you want, go to iTunes or wherever you listen. Give us a rating. Give us a five-star. Tell everybody how much you love us. I mean, five-star doesn't hurt anybody, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. We deserve it. <laughs> Doug has this mustache for you to give a five-star rating, yeah. and, and you're not going to anything do it. less than five, disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on to the episode. <laughs> Thanks, guys.
1: I'm Chase Rolson with RubLine Marketing. This is Jeff Lindsay. This is Michael
0: Pitt. Hey everybody, it's John Dudley from Knock On TV. Hey guys, this is Jared Scheffler from Whitetail Adrenaline. Hi,
4: I'm Taylor Drury from Drury Outdoors.
0: Hey, this is Nick Mutt from Ball Collector.
4: Hey, this is Melissa Bachman.
1: what hey
0: everyone welcome to the podcast this week we have two special guests i'm glad we were able to make this happen we have Corey jacobson and donnie drake on the podcast what's up fellas
4: hey not much here.
0: Thank you for doing the podcast.
4: Started.
0: Sorry, we are we got this conference call going. Yeah. <laughs> Off to a killer start.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, we're, we're great. We're great.
0: So anyway, uh, I don't know who wants to go first, but um, I want you guys to just make a quick introduction because you're talking to a primary base of whitetail hunters. Uh, that's basically our listeners' bread and butter. And most people that haven't done any type of elk hunting or western hunting in general are dreaming about it or planning on that. So whoever wants to take it away, go for it.
4: Yeah. Go I, ahead, Corey. Say, you know,
1: I, I think the, uh, the whitetail crowd is, is our crowd as well, because we dream of Western hunting every night. We live here and we're fortunate and blessed to, uh, to live here, but, uh, we dream of it every night. I think, uh, most whitetail hunters probably dream of hunting out West and, and elk hunting as well. So, uh Donnie and I are part of a, a company called elk101.com. Uh I started it in 2008 and our entire uh work mission and uh our goal is just to inspire, educate and entertain people in the world of elk hunting. So uh we run a website where there's a lot of information, we uh, produce a ton of videos and uh also post the uh, University of Elk Hunting online course, which teaches people how to how to make their dream a reality of going elk hunting.
0: Yeah, I've, see, I've seen the University of Elk Hunting. So when I first uh, learned about that, it was in a couple years ago when I went on my first elk hunt. I've only been on one, um, but that was the one thing that kept popping up. And it's something I've always wanted to do before I go on my next elk hunt, which I'm going next fall. Um, so I think that's something I'm going to try and get done because – I thought that was really cool, and I don't know if there's anything similar to that in the whitetail world, but you know, just knowing whitetails like we do, we know how complex and deep it can get, and certain strategies that you only learn from doing it over and over and over again. So I really thought that idea of like an elk hunting university was really smart and Mm -hmm. probably help a ton of guys.
1: Absolutely, you know, and that was kind of. I get a lot of questions through the website and. You know, just seeing that and realizing how hungry people were for information and to, you know, to increase their knowledge base and, and educate themselves, that's kind of what led me to create the course. And I think we're over 30,000 memberships now in the course. Um, you know, it's just it's awesome to see that many passionate people that were able to, some some of them introduced elk hunting, um, help people. Achieve success, or help those who are already successful, uh, maybe improve in their calling, or improve in some way to to increase their success wherever their experience level is.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And too, and like when you go to the the website, you know that the statistics show that only ten percent of elk hunters are successful. You know, that's crazy. And you guys put it on there like, you know, one that's wild. One in 10 hunters or one in 10 years, you'd be successful. And when you word it that way, one in 10 years, years—wow! there's a lot of guys that can't afford that, <laughs> you know, or, I mean, maybe they want to or whatever, but not a lot of guys can go 10 times and still be motivated. Um, being I mean, you're going to have fun, but you want to be successful too, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, you look at the averages and, I think it's applicable to just about anything in life. You know, 10% is kind of that magic number, 10 to 20%. And whether we're talking small business, uh, success rates for hunting, um, you know, all those different things. And I think it really comes down to those who are hungry to learn, willing to put in the work, and willing to stick with it and learn from mistakes. And, And really that's what it comes down to for elk hunting. And there's no reason to be stuck in that 10% average, and there's really no reason to even start off uh, at 10%. I think with what's out there today, for, you know, for e-scouting and education and everything, there's no reason that people can't step into the Elkwoods the first time and, and be confident enough to be successful. And maybe not on their first year, you know, that's, that's the goal for sure, but definitely within two or three years they should be able to put it together and, and be successful if they're willing to work.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. I think the whole idea of that is awesome, One to help people be successful and, and have more fun. So I'm sure you guys had a blast putting that together. And th- how long did it take you to, to put together the c- curriculum?
1: <laughs> I was going to say define having a blast because, uh, well, <laughs> while it is elk hunting content and it is fun. It was pretty much nine months straight dedicated to uh, laying out the curriculum, Creating the content, doing all the videos, writing everything, creating the diagrams and the images, and then creating the platform—you know, the a platform on a on a website that can handle that many visitors and that much traffic and be able to process the memberships and keep everything behind a paywall and everything—it was it was, a, it was a pretty much all hands on deck for about nine months.
0: You didn't just pawn it off on Donnie and just say, "Hey, man, you just handle this, and I'm going to go get a coffee."
1: No, like it, Donnie, Donnie just handled all the dad jokes.
4: Yeah. yeah. If it was handed to me, probably the uh, success rate would have gone down for quite a few people.
3: <laughs> it's
0: 10% to 2%. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going the wrong way here. <laughs> it's like, hey, oops, pay, should have paid attention. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. Hey, I can only imagine, like the amount of effort it would take to put something together, because even whitetails are complex, and maybe, and maybe I'm kind of talking that as I I feel that elk are more complex, but and I don't know if that they are, but it, I just know way less about them, so it seems more complex. And of course, you never learn everything; it doesn't feel that right? way anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, have you guys done a lot of whitetail hunting?
4: I haven't done a whole lot. of killed one years and years ago but it kind of interferes with elk season so <laughs> it hasn't good happened point. what about you cory
1: yeah i grew up in uh central idaho along the Clearwater river and so we had a pretty good population of whitetails and uh more you know mountain buck type hunting uh and we we definitely got after it from a young age it did a ton of whitetail shed hunting and and uh love it you know but it's not i haven't spent uh, i only came out i hunted illinois one time for whitetail from a tree stand and outside of that i've done a couple late archery hunts here where we've utilized tree stands but most of it's just been either spot and stock or rattling and calling for them
0: gotcha yeah illinois is right in our wheelhouse that's where yep we're we're right in the heat of the big whitetail country i was just curious like how much you guys have done or if it even interested you that much i, I always like to ask our Western boys, what they think about all of it, that do a lot less of it? And uh, and it seems like the common answer is, I don't think I could sit in a tree stand for that long, which, which I find funny. <laughs> Only 10% yeah, of them, see, maybe.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if they came in the first evening, I could handle it. But after that, I'd probably climb out of the tree and just walk around shooting squirrels or something. <laughs> we'll
0: have to put together yeah. like a tree stand university for you. So you can yeah, there you go. To, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ours would be a lot shorter, though. <laughs> yeah, it's like an hour
2: long. Occupy your time. Slide one. Just sit there. <laughs> move. Don't move.
0: Um, let's talk about elk talk. Yeah. What, just,
1: what do you want to talk? About? I just left that elk really
0: broad to see where yeah. it goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, obviously everyone listening here, uh, they're, they're podcast listeners, and I think a lot of guys that are dreaming about doing that Western hunt, that elk hunt, could probably find a lot of value in an elk hunting podcast, and you guys just happen to have one.
1: Yeah, so we, uh, we have the Elk Talk podcast, and uh, we put out about two to three episodes a month, so it's not a, a lot of episodes. But we uh, we have a lot of fun talking about anything elk hunting related. So a lot of strategy, tactics, uh, but also some uh, politics as far as like legislation that's affecting public lands and uh, elk hunting seasons and structure, as well as some, some comedy and uh, stories and all of that. So you can find that anywhere that you listen to podcasts.
0: Awesome. Do you guys do that video as well, right?
1: Uh, not so much video. We do put it out on YouTube on the Elk on YouTube channel. Uh, but usually, you know, especially, so Randy Newberg's, uh, one of the hosts of that as well. And so with us kind of all being remote, uh, doing it by video has been a little bit more challenging. We have some of them that are videoed, but most of them are not
0: a video podcast can be a headache sometimes, yep. but, um, we've been down that road. It's fun still, but it's, it's nicer. Just get on a call and go and not have to worry about video and everything. Absolutely. Um, what's your guys' favorite thing about elk hunting? So I kind of wanted to like hit these surface-level questions before we start deep diving.
4: Well, for me, it's just being able to talk to an animal and have them talk back to you and being able to call them in. I mean, that's, I think, the biggest lure of getting people, it, or that people enjoy is hearing them talk.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think that would probably be my favorite because it it's very rare you actually get to vocally interact with with a deer. Well, yeah, it's such a big animal too. So that's that's the I think the big appeal for us when we think about elk hunting is like the, yeah. the screaming bull and everything like that. But you know, with with us, we don't know how to. I would never know how to call back when to call. Like when you know when you break it down like that, I'd, I'd be lost. But I think that's the big allure to the Midwestern crowd is you know them interacting with. I feel you. Like I'd be like when I am turkey hunting just keep calling for
3: 800 pounds Yeah, yeah. just Over-call. keep calling
2: for no reason <laughs> they're here somewhere right right
0: what about you cory
1: yeah along the same lines and i think you know just to add to that the, the vocal interaction is incredible it's what you know motivates me to work out year round to sit at a computer and just study the uh, the pixels out of a a map and uh you know, just to be able to go out there and interact vocally with them. Um, But it's also, I think, one of the biggest obstacles and one of the biggest hurdles that probably keeps a lot of people from going elk hunting because they want that experience. But like you mentioned, you know what, where do I even start? How do I use the calls once I get in the woods? You know, how do we get an elk to respond? And then how do we finish them off and call them in? And it's definitely daunting. Um, and, And there is a bit to it, but I think uh, a lot of people look into it a little too much and make it a little too difficult. Uh, when you, when you break it down, uh, there really is a pretty simple approach and, and it shouldn't ever be a a barrier that keeps people from going elk hunting.
0: Yeah. I, I've always wondered that because I, I imagine wind and a whole lot of things and terrain play into calling and how to call and when to call. Um, and that might be hard to dive into on the podcast. I mean, um, but maybe it's not. Um, but, I mean, the first thing is, like, you know, obviously learning how to call. How important is it that, like, you sound perfect when you bugle?
4: Not important at all, as long as you're – it can be the timing of it and the aggression of it. it. it, You don't have to sound like Corey does every time he bugles. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's Donnie's way of suddenly telling me I need to practice more. But, yes. You know, I, I agree a hundred percent that, you know, I, I would much rather hunt with someone who uh, is just a, a killer in the woods than someone who's a good caller. So I've known a lot of really, really good callers that just don't fill a tag. And I've known a lot of people that can't call it all, that fill their tag every year. And so, You know, being a a good caller as far as how the quality of the sounds is not nearly as important as just um, understanding what you need to do and and how you need to do it.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes me feel a little better because the one time I went, I was with my buddies that were pretty experienced in elk calling. And then I feel like when I tried it, the every bull that might have heard it thought something was wrong with me. So, but, but, you know, they were there, they we were all, you know, joking around with each other and stuff like that, but it is fun to try it. But I, I think from my perspective, like, man, I'd feel a lot cooler and a lot more productive if that bugle sounded a little cleaner, <laughs> but I had no idea what I was doing. That's part of the fun and learning, you know, Definitely. Um, what's something, like, do you think, you know, you said calling, not as important as some guys might think, but where do a lot of guys, do you think, or if there's one main area, where do a lot of guys that aren't real experienced elk hunters, where do they fall short of being successful? If you had to, like, pick one or two things.
1: I'll let Donnie answer that one.
4: Yep. It is understanding and knowing how to work your way through the woods with the wind in mind just understanding thermals and where your scent is going to go
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense that's you know in the terrain i imagine makes that a lot more challenging task um with the thermals especially
4: Uh, it can be challenging or or some of the times it can be towards your benefit if they're upwind of you or downwind, if you depend on if you're going to have to go up and over a ridge or if you're just going to have to walk down a ridge to be able to get to them.
0: Yeah, what, I mean, yeah. what do you think ch- makes a bigger challenge in the different hilly terrain? Is you think the wind or the thermals, if you had to like pick one or the other?
4: I'd say thermals. That's, that's
3: and,
1: and we pre- don't get, you know, we don't get a lot of wind you know i know back east and stuff you're you're a lot of times looking at the wind in the morning's out of the southwest well this is the stand i'm going to go to today because of that Mm -hmm. here we're dealing with you know mountain thermals which are just a a diurnal thermal so they change twice a day when the ground warms up enough the uh the air starts rising and as the ground cools off it starts going down and uh, as it goes down you know obviously all of the thermals are moving down mountain down drainage Uh, When the thermals are going up during the middle of the day, when it's warmer, they're, you know, basically blanketing their way up the mountain. So understanding that, you know, if you understand, and and also realizing that the elk 100% rely on those thermals to keep them alive. So their movements are based on what the thermals are doing. They're moving with the the thermals coming into their face. So early in the morning when the thermals are still coming down the mountain, that's when the elk are moving up the mountain to bed down. Uh, They're picking an area to bed where they're going to be able to use the thermals that are coming up from below them during the middle of the day to keep them safe and usually leave either a a wide open hill up above them so they can see or a really thick hill up above them where they can hear anything trying to come in. Um, Just understanding little things like that really helps not only find elk, but, you know, move in with the elk, set up to call the elk in in an area where they're going to be most likely to come in uh, and just really, you know, like Bonnie mentioned, using them to your advantage. The thermals can be a huge advantage uh, if you understand what they're doing and and move in accordingly. But at the same time, if you don't, I can't tell you how many times we've had other hunters move in from upwind of the elk. You know, they're up above them, the thermals are coming down, and they're just dropping straight down on the elk. And from even 800 yards away, the elk go quiet and move off because they've smelled danger.
3: So, guys, w- when you spook a herd of elk, do you think you're done with them, or will you back out, give them some time to regroup and go after them again the next day or maybe that afternoon?
1: Donnie?
4: Um a lot of times we will let them settle. A lot of times we will just continue chasing them from a different area, from a different approach. Depends on if there's other elk talking too.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. So back here. You know, if we were going to try to to approach whitetails on the ground, it's really hard to get inside of 100 yards on a whitetail and not be picked off. And so we know what aggressive is back here. And you hear a lot of guys talk about going out west and getting aggressive on the elk. What do you guys like? Describe an aggressive approach when you guys feel like it's the right situation, and what does that mean for for when you're going after them?
1: I think there's probably two parts to being aggressive first is the approach you know and like i said it's tough to get inside 100 yards of any animals that's what makes archery hunting so so you know challenging but also so rewarding and fun uh it's super tough to get inside 100 yards of an elk and you know if, if you're going to it's going to take a lot of patience moving at the right time and all of that so i think when we talk about being aggressive um we're definitely, we push in really hard and get as close and as tight to the elk as we can before we even set up. Uh, and then once we set up, our calling is also aggressive. And, and being aggressive there, I think, has been the, they both contribute to it. The closer you can get to the elk before you start calling, the better chance you have of calling them in. And then once you get there, being aggressive is, is really a key to calling them in. They're, they're responding to basically two emotions. If you're going to get an elk to come into your calls, that bull's either coming in because he thinks you're a cow and he wants to either add you to his harem or breed you, or he's coming in because he thinks you're a bull and he wants to fight you. And when you look at it that way, you know, you can get pretty aggressive either way. You know, you can be aggressive and be a cow that really is uh, intent on being bred, uh, or you can get aggressive and be uh, a bull elk that's really intent on starting a fight and, and challenging that other bull to come in and fight.
3: Man,
0: I love the way you put that. It makes a ton of sense. You know, a lot of that. Like, we're, we're sorry to keep referencing our whitetail brains to the elk hunting brain, but the good, good question, Todd, on that because the aggression thing. I'm not. I don't really consider myself a super aggressive whitetail hunter. I probably am with like my mobility, but as far as like, yeah, having one on the ground at a hundred yards, I probably would almost <coughs> never try it unless it was absolutely perfect and. I knew whatever the, some unique circumstance, it could be a slam dunk. Yeah, I, I almost would feel like I'd probably screw it up, and I'd rather get in and kind of intercept them in a natural movement than try and put the move on a whitetail.
3: Yeah, I think aggression and back in the Midwest on whitetails is I'm going to go in the middle of the timber and try to hit this one spot and hope something shows up Yeah, versus out there. You're, you're moving in close. And actually, targeting a specific animal mm-hmm. and a specific day.
0: I like the way you said, you know, get as close as you can before you really set up to call. Your chances are better because, you know, the only time I've done is like, or, or, I guess what be, you'll locate them and then move in, like get them to bugle at you or listen for them to bugle naturally and then move in.
4: Typically, yes.
0: Yeah. See, so.
3: When you but, guys are walking through the timber out there, are you are you like trying not to step on a stick? Are you taking your sweet time or I've heard elk are loud animals and they, they, they smell. You can usually usually you'll know they're around before they know you're around necessarily. Do you guys have any tips on that?
1: I was, I was pausing to let Donnie answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thought Donnie fell down. I'll
4: let you take it.
1: All right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, elk do make noise. When we're hiking, you know, if we're making noise, we try to keep it natural. You know I mean? We don't want to scuff our boots and drag our feet so that it sounds like a human walking. Uh, We don't want to wear loud backpacks that are brushing up against the brush and, and don't sound natural, things like that. But as far as breaking a stick every once in a while, you know, it's not like we're just going through the woods just tripping over stuff and making all sorts of noise, but if we do happen to, to break the stick or roll a rock or something, it's it's certainly not a big deal. Um, yeah, but, I mean, that's really all we're doing is just hiking. We get on a ridge. We try to cover as much country as we can until we get a response. And so we're, you know, we're stopping quite frequently and broadcasting a bugle out there hoping something answers it. And then once they do answer it, we pinpoint their location, and that's when we move in. We get pretty aggressive, you know, depending on – Again, the train, the thermals, all of that. But if they're in a good position to be able to get in and set up and call them in, we'll move in there pretty quickly. But at that point, we, we do kind of keep track of our noise. We don't want them to know we're coming in close. We want that element of surprise. You know, once we get to that 100-yard or even 150- or 200-yard point, if they have no idea we're there, uh, that plays to our advantage big time in, in trying to triple trigger and get them
4: to come in.
3: So you turn the side by side off before you bugle. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, there, sometimes we do walk side by side, but usually it's single file.
2: <laughs> nice. So when uh, when you say you get in aggressive and then you start calling, do you have to read what the bull's doing to go cow or elk or elk or the the bull? Like which one do you decide yeah. to choose?
1: To, to a degree, you know, you do kind of try to, to figure out what they're most interested in. Uh, we usually always start off with cow call, mm-hmm. and there's a couple reasons for that. First, if he replies to the cow call and he's super interested in it, if he doesn't think there's another bull there, he might be more likely to come in to, to check out that cow. Uh, so we usually start off with cow call and engage kind of his response. If he hammers right back uh, first time on a cow call, you know, we might – just lay there and give him a couple more cow calls and see if he starts working our way uh, if he doesn't then then we'll we have that option of escalating it and going into a, an aggressive bugle if we were get in close and just all of a sudden aggressively bugle that might be enough to push him away sometimes so we always start with a cow call and then depending on how he responds to that we'll either keep cow calling or we'll move into a bugle
0: I like it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Just kind of like similar to like grunting loud at a whitetail at 20 yards, they're going to jump out of their skin. (laughs) I mean, I've seen it happen. Or even you try to stop a whitetail by making a little grunt noise and see them jump out of your skin. And then you're kind of kicking your own ass at blowing the opportunity by being a little aggressive with that.
3: Seems like a lot of times out here when you call to a whitetail, they'll come in a little bit suspicious, wanting to see another deer. Mm. And if they don't see it, they'll get a little bit nervous. Do uh, elk seem to have that tendency as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you uh, elk, probably the biggest difficulty you run into calling an elk is they'll hang up at that 80 or 100-yard distance. And the reason why is they can see the location where you're calling from and they don't see an elk. and They can pinpoint that sound so incredibly accurately that they get in there and they see that sound's coming from that tree at 80 yards, and I don't see an elk. I should be able to see an elk, and I'm not going any closer. You know, they start getting nervous, and, you know, they'll sometimes they'll bark at you just out of, you know, a little bit of confusion and frustration, uh, nervousness. A lot of times they'll kind of stand there and look for a few minutes, and they'll just go quiet and move off. Uh, but, yeah, it's the it's same thing. So, I mean, setup's super important. If you're calling, you definitely don't want to call from the middle of a meadow where they come to the edge of the meadow and see out there and realize there's no elk. And they, they certainly aren't going to walk out in the middle of an open meadow where they just heard an elk but don't see one. They they start getting pretty nervous pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. You know, it's really, it seems like really complicated stuff. And I think a lot of it, it seems like complicated stuff on the surface, but it's really not when you break it down. It's like, if you were an elk, you heard calling, what would you want to see? Yeah. You know, you're not going to take that risk of like the the meadow. So, yeah, you need some you need some reassurance that if you're going in, you're not getting fooled here and, you know, be smart about this because that's survival for them. So, it, you know, it is complex, but it also, it's kind of obvious at the same time which is a weird way to think about things but it but it makes sense too at the same time like i get it um, yes if you guys know that m-
1: honestly that was that was a lot of the the information and the way that the online course is laid out is to make it more systematic you know give a, an approach that is you can build on that you know mm-hmm. you start out very simple and, and really Elk hunting should be kept simple. There's no need to complicate it. You know, it's, it's tough enough. Just the terrain that they live in and the hiking, the physical aspect of it is tough. Um, and then they're a smart animal for sure. They, they spend every day trying to stay alive. So uh, no need to complicate it from from our side, which I think a lot of times as people and as hunters, we tend to complicate things for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, hey, I, I want to dive into some Patreon listener questions here. But before, um, and maybe this question's in there, I don't know. I imagine we're going to hit a variety here. But are you guys big? Uh, this is something, This is a question from me. Are you guys big into like taxidermy? Like, do you guys have
4: a lot of elk shoulder mounts? Donnie? I do not. I have all Europeans in my house. Not a single taxidermy piece at all interesting
1: yeah in my house i have uh, zero taxidermy i do have one elk that i did a pedestal shoulder mount on um and i've got you know some hides from different animals that i've got canned and uh, i've definitely i went through a phase where where i like taxidermy and i had a full mount mountain lion a full mount bear uh, bear rugs and stuff but it's uh kind of Transition past that and kind of like the on a european mounts are kind of cool looking so i've got a few of those in my house but not a lot of taxidermy outside of that
0: interesting can i ask why is it just do you not like the look of it does it take up too much room what's the main reason you guys lean towards i know elk are huge so it's a little different <laughs> from us <laughs> yeah. but um i imagine space right
4: i i'm not going to say space i'm going to say that's money i can spend on next year's hunt <laughs>
0: okay, I get that. I get
4: that. Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a cost, you know, part of it. Space is part of it. Um, for me, I think you know, there's there's uh I've got a lot of animals in the past mounted, and they just sit there and collect dust, and very few people ever get to see them, you know, other than myself. And and now, especially with videoing, you know, we can relive the hunt with videos and pictures and all of that so just you know i uh i think it's a a combination of all those different factors that kind of lead to you know not not getting a a amount done on an animal it's a giant or something yeah i mean regardless what it is a mule deer uh, an elk a whitetail anything you know i think that it's cool to display them that way
0: Yeah. I was just curious because, you know, as many, as much elk hunting you guys do, you know, if you saw our studio and all our houses, I mean, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people walk in, they go, geez, it's like a Midwestern wildlife museum in here. What's going on. And (laughs) I can, I just feel like maybe at first, of course I would want to elk mount, but man, I'd be the dude that would have to add an addition because I like shoulder mounts so much. I think everybody here at the studio table is probably nodding in agreement with me out. Like Todd, if you killed ten elk that were all real nice size bulls, would you shoulder mount them all?
3: Man, I don't know. I might get one or two shoulder mounts, but I'll tell you, an elk looks good in a euro. They do. You they know? do look good. I killed a little mountain yeah. Colorado a few years. But so does a good whitetail. Well, that's true too. Yeah, no doubt about it. But I am um,
0: shoulder mounting my whitetail. Yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> can't go wrong with good taxidermy.
0: Right, I get it. You know, I think if I lived in elk country, yeah, I am more realistically one to three, and then yeah. some euro mounts, yeah. but. Man, that'd be hard. I don't know. <laughs> I like shoulder mounts. They're just cool. Um, hey, guys. Sorry to interrupt the podcast again. We're sorry. Uh, we're sorry. Oops. Our bad. <laughs> uh, the podcast is brought to you by Thermacy. Uh We have a code. If you need a new or just a replacement tree stand seat, Mm -hmm. um, check out the traditional series. We have them on our website, workingclassbyhunter.com. But you can get them at ThermoSeat, and you can use the code WCTS. It helps keep your butt warm. And if you're using a cheaper stand or just a regular cast stand, um, expanded metal, whatever's on there, you can get that pad. And I find squirrels don't chew on them like they will the cheap. You'd be surprised the difference
2: it makes too. Like Mm -hmm. it's really nice seat.
0: And what's cool. If you get the thinner traditional series, you can fold it up, put it in your pack or you put a carabiner on it and just clip it to the outside of your backpack. Mm -hmm. So check out thermoseat code WCTS for that. Uh, The podcast also brought to you by victory archery Mm -hmm. Um, in real time. I'm due to cut a dozen arrows here this weekend for a hunt that I'm on probably as this launches so yep. rib TKOs and I shoot the 70 grain insert. It's like an insert outsert. It's like a sleeve that covers the end of the arrow. Mm-hmm. Pretty damn resilient. I like it because the glue goes in the shaft and then on the outside with that outsert. Yep. So you never, I've never had an insert fall out from like hitting bone or dirt and it knocks it loose. Um, Is one of those going to be
2: going through meal mule deer as we talking right now? Maybe just, I hope just like butter.
0: Like, Clean through, baby. <laughs> uh, the podcast also brought to you by Loophole Optics. I know damn well I'll be using my loopholes up on oh, this hunt. One hundred percent. We all will be using them all fall. I'm calling it the Midwest takeover for Loophole. Great optics. I think I'm taking BX4 twelve by fifties on that hunt. Um, that'll be glued to me. And then, uh, the RX four full draw, full draw, of the new rangefinder. So, yep. uh, check out loophole. If you're due for a new rangefinder upgrade, that's one thing I live by. And I have had a lot of cheap, crappy rangefinders, mm-hmm. and I live by my rangefinder. Yep. So that's an investment. I'm willing to put a little more time and money into is a good, good. I
2: recommend that. Yeah. Probably a good idea. It's not a bad
0: idea at all. Probably a good idea. Um the podcast also brought to you by Novix Tree Stands, a newer partner for oh, us. Yeah. They are American made, um one of the few American made tree stand companies, affordable. The code is working class 21 for 50% off at Novix Tree Stands. So check them out. They are fairly local to us within an hour of yeah. where the studio is. So it's pretty, pretty good cool. price too, so Yeah, really good price. You can be into a really light setup for under 10 pounds for not a lot of money and American made. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. So the best of both worlds. Come on. You do. What else? What else do you want? I don't know. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah. What else can we say?
0: (laughs) And then something else uh, that's unique that we're doing. We wanted to throw this out to our listeners because you guys are obviously podcast fanatics, if you're listening to this podcast. Um, hey, look at you go. This far through. Look at you go. Episode 468, <laughs> and here you are. He's still here. Um, but we do have a lot of friends that have podcasts, and a podcast that we respect a lot and like a lot is the Fall Podcast with Aaron Blysee. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome podcast. I think all of us have been on the show except for Ross, but I, uh, I talked to Aaron today. I'm like, Hey, you need to get Ross bigger on the podcast. He's a, yeah. he's a sad man. Aaron's slacking, but no, Aaron does a killer job on his podcast. Check mm-hmm. out the fall podcast. Tell him we sent you great dude. Um, and we think if you're not going to listen to us all the time, you should at least listen to our friends. Yeah. I may listen to us. You know, the double the amount, but give him, give him a little bit. But if you don't want to do that, you can just, do <laughs> just so, say you did just say, you did. so check him out. Alright, back to the episode. Alright, moving on to some Patreon questions. I will kind of... There's a lot in here. Um, well, there's not as much as I thought. There's a there's a fair amount. Um, if you guys don't mind, I'll just kind of run through them in order if you guys are alright with that. Yep. yep. Uh, Taylor Whitman asks, uh, what kind of poundage does it really take uh, to shoot an elk with a bow? I'm shooting 55 pounds and I keep thinking it's not enough. 55
4: is plenty. Yeah,
1: you know, I mean, it, it really comes down to knowing your your limitations on distance. And I think the lower poundage, you're going to have a, a closer limitation. Uh, the, the legal draw weight in most western states to hunt big game is 40 pounds. That varies a little bit. There's a few that require 45 or 50, but I think the, the consensus for most western states is 40 Uh, I personally required my kiddos to be pulling 45 pounds before they hunted elk, uh, and all of them were able to do that, you know, by the time they were 11 or 12, so it wasn't a a big issue. But, you know, even at that, at 45 pounds, 30 yards is their max, and anything over 30 yards, you just, you know, you've got a pretty slow-moving arrow in order to get enough weight on the arrow to to penetrate an elk. It's not going to be moving too fast, so a a lot of factors come into play there. Uh, I think it's 55 pounds I personally shoot 66 67 pounds I shoot a 70 pound bow and back it off a couple turns uh, my arrows are 470 grains somewhere in there I'm shooting about 280 feet per second and I think it's a good balance between speed and weight right at that point uh, my kids are they're all shooting 50 pounds or more now um, but you know like I like to say 45 is enough to get it done I would I'd probably not recommend shooting past 30 yards of an elk uh, at 45 pounds. Once you get up to 55 pounds, so I think, uh, you know, you're good out to 50 yards as long as you're doing your part practicing and practicing and confident with your bow.
0: Interesting. Good good advice. Um, and then she had another uh, add-on question to that. What would be three pieces of advice for a newbie elk hunter?
1: Donnie, you want that one?
4: Oh, I'll give at least one. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go back to prior in the conversation. Know how to read and interpret the wind. That is going to be one of your most important things, a little $6 wind detector to be able to monitor where you're walking is going to be the most critical thing that you're going to have in your backpack when you're out
1: elk hunting. Yep, another uh, another thing. To add on to that's physical conditioning. I know uh, a lot of whitetail hunters are coming from a thousand feet in elevation or lower, or some are, you know, not high elevation.
0: You're calling us fat, Corey. Yeah, come What's on, that? Man. you're calling us fat. We we can we can read no, between no, the lines no. here, Corey. <laughs>
1: this is complete elevation. I'm talking speaking directly to elevation, not uh, not.
0: Not to I Ho-Ho's and Casey's matters.
1: Pizza. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, vertically mean, you know, challenged. I live at 5,000 feet, and we went scouting last weekend and got up to 9,600 feet. And even living at 5,000 feet, when I hit 7,000 feet, I noticed a difference. And so for somebody living at 1,000 feet in elevation and going to seven or 8,000 feet in Colorado, uh, it's going to be tough. I got a headache last weekend at 9,600 feet, you know, and obviously it has to do with, with uh, conditioning, with hydration and things, but sometimes you just get, you know, altitude sickness when you get above seven or 8,000 feet. And So the more prepared you are physically, the, the more you're going to enjoy it. Uh, so physical conditioning is a, a huge part of it. And then uh, just confidence. You know, gain confidence in every aspect you can. That doesn't mean you have to be an expert in every different category, but gain confidence in it. You know, your gear, know your gear, know that it's going to perform, shoot your weapon, make sure that you're confident in in its ability, Uh, calling, you know, don't overcomplicate it, keep it simple, but practice it and be confident in the sounds that you need to make and the sounds that you're making, Uh, physical conditioning, be confident in that. There's just a lot of those little pieces that the more confidence you can gain in each piece, I think the the better the puzzle goes to bet together for you when you're out there in the woods.
0: Yeah, great advice, guys. Appreciate you answering that, and thanks, Taylor, for throwing those in. Uh, the next question comes from Rachel Bouchak. We call her Biddy Bouch. Biddy uh, She just want to say uh, thank you guys for all the great information. Um, it was incredibly helpful as I was getting into elk hunting and undoubtedly played a role in my success. Uh question for Corey. We are returning to a unit. We've had success killing young bulls in the past two years, but we rarely see cows or mature bulls and rarely hear bugles. Blind calling has been effective, but they usually come in silent. Thoughts on why this may be and tips for how to approach hunting the area. Man,
1: so many, uh, so many factors and questions came into mind. Just as you were reading that there's, there's really, a ton that goes into that and so without knowing all the all the details I'm uh, kind of shooting in the dark here but first thing that comes to mind if you're only seeing young bulls you aren't seeing the cows you aren't seeing the the mature bulls or hearing bugles uh elk are transition animals and they have a, a transitional uh geography that they go through and so the cows move back up a little bit uh from from where they winter And they have their calves, and that's kind of the area that they hang out throughout the summer. And that's really typically going to be the the general location where the rut's going to happen. The bulls, on the other hand, they all go up to the high country as soon as they can get there. And they spend the summer uh, pretty high up, uh, usually as high as they can get where they've got food and, and water to get out of the heat and out of the bugs. Uh, but then right before the rut kicks in, these bulls that have spent the summer together, they break up and they go into uh, kind of a preparatory phase where they're getting ready for the rut. They're getting agitated. They don't want to be around other bulls. So especially those bigger, more mature bulls, they, uh, they move off by themselves. And they start raking, you know, rubbing the velvet off their antlers and really building up for the rut. But during that time, a lot of times the, the less mature bulls, still kind of stick together in in the little groups. Even after they've rubbed the velvet off, they're more tolerant of each other, and a lot of times they don't move down as quickly as those big bulls do. They're they're late getting to the party. So my guess to that question is most likely you're in an area where the rut's not happening and you're catching some of those lingering younger bulls in that area. Uh, If you probably spend a little more time looking for the cows – once you find the cows, you're going to find the mature bulls, and you're going to hear more bugling. And it's probably going to be at a lower elevation would be my guess. And, again, weather comes into a factor there. Terrain comes into a factor. There's a, there's a lot of things. But in a nutshell, that would be, the, that'd be where I start at least.
3: Hey, Corey, if, if, if a guy drew a tag out, let's just throw a hypothetical at you. Guy draws a tag in somewhere in Colorado, uh there's mountain peaks going up to thirteen five to fourteen thousand. They go out there in late July, they find a bunch of bulls up in a eleven five to twelve five bowl or open slope. Where do you how far do you think typically those bulls are gonna relocate by the time September gets there?
1: That's uh just about impossible to answer okay. because it, it really i mean every single ridge might be different even in the same unit sure it really depends on where the cows are I and mean, that's honestly when i'm scouting for elk i look for cows throughout the summer i don't care where the bulls are uh and, and you know if you get into a place like arizona or new mexico where you're targeting a bigger bull uh where you've got an opportunity to hunt a, a bigger trophy type bull it, it might be different And they are not as transitional as as the elk in Colorado and Idaho and Montana, Wyoming, some of the, you know, the Rocky Mountain states. Those elk, they they migrate. They go from the high country in the summer down to uh, where they breed and rut, and then they migrate down to to a winter range. So they're definitely a lot more transitional. And in that, you know, sometimes it's a, 300 feet in elevation is all they have to drop to find the cows. Sometimes it's 5,000 feet in elevation. So it really, you know, depends on where you're finding the cows in the summer is where you're probably going to find the bulls the, the first couple of weeks of September when the rut's kicking in.
3: Great. Interesting.
0: Um, this is a question I really like. Um, Chris Adams asks, I'd like to know some suggestions going on an elk hunt when I'm not as mobile. Um, he has uh-huh. a, he has a bad knee. As most headed, uh, Not as mobile as most headed out west. Should I wait until I get my knee fixed, or are there alternatives available?
4: For some reason, I feel like I'm supposed to answer this. <laughs> <laughs> so I was supposed to have knee surgery last year on both knees, but uh, due to COVID, my surgery got canceled. And as an alternative, the doctor said to try some Synvex, um, S-Y-N-V-E-X, or I think that's how you spell it, injections. It's a synthetic lubricant that uh, they injected in my knees, and it was a a shot in each knee over a three-week period for a total of three shots, and i was amazed by it and i did not have surgery this year and i am having another round of injections currently for this season to keep it going and before i have to replace them
0: no kidding correct are the shots painful like as you get
4: them not in the least absolutely i mean it's I'd say it's just like a COVID shot, but I don't know what those feel like, so. That's <laughs> <laughs> either. Yeah, I don't either. Um, interesting. But uh, not painful at all.
0: No kidding. It sounds painful,
4: yeah. <laughs> to be honest. No, it's just a it's a synthet, it's synthetic lubricant, but it also depends on what their issues are with their knees. I'm 51 now, and I've just worn off a bunch of the cartilage on my the end of my knees so it's just kind of bone to bone and it needs a little extra lubricant in there in order for it to make it less friction on there and causing pain by the end of the day
0: yeah yeah well todd you're you're into running do you ever i mean you either have strong knees or you got issues with your knees it seems like with it Runners.
3: yeah i mean it, thankfully i got into running a little bit later in my life so i, I haven't had the, the breakdown still fresh but, uh, yeah but you, i was you, gonna say donnie what's that uh product called because we know a duck guy that's always looking for artificial lubricant back here. <laughs> right yeah what's up Doug? <laughs> <laughs> nice one todd is it cheap yeah <laughs> you, know,
0: you buy in bulk <laughs> uh todd that was good um Here's another question. This one's from Andy Bouchak. This is uh, Biddy Rachel's husband, Biddy Bush's husband. Uh, question for Corey. If you were limited to a 10-day out-of-state hunt and had previously hunted the same area and found an active wallow, would you advise just hunting it for 10 straight days during the mid-September for the best opportunity for success? This will be my fourth trip to archery elk hunt, and I feel a lot of pressure. I can't take another year of looking at my wife's bull in our living room and her asking me if I ever killed a bull with my bow. <laughs> That's hilarious.
1: That's awesome. You know, I uh, like we talked about with tree stand hunting for whitetail. I can't sit. I just I don't have the patience to sit. Um, but with that being said, if you have ten days and you know where an active wallow is, um what I would probably recommend is setting up a trail camera on that wallow and the first three or four days, not hunting there and then go and check in the trail camera to see if the elk's coming in, if he's patternable, if he's coming in every day at 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, figure out the wind direction, figure out what you're going to do to, to set up whether it's a tree stand or a blind or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, if, if they're coming in and I, you know, wallow's, are different than a water hole. If I was hunting the first ten days of September, I probably wouldn't hunt a wallow. Uh, they really don't start rutting and, and getting that internal body heat built up until you know the tenth or twelfth of September. And from there through the end of September they're gonna be more active on a wallow. Uh, so if you're hunting mid rut, peak rut, you know, say the fifteenth through the twenty fifth, yeah, a wallow's gonna be probably pretty active. The other problem you run into is if there's 20 wallows on a hillside, you know, which one is that bull hitting or is he hitting a different one each day? If there's only one wallow and there's six different bulls coming in there, uh, then, yeah, I would, I would park myself on that. And like you said, that's probably going to give the best chance, the most efficient chance uh, for success. But keep in mind, thermals set up. Uh, and then if you can let that trail camera sit for three or four days so you can get an idea of what's coming in and
3: when they're coming,
1: that'll help you quite a bit as well.
3: Interesting. Um, I like that a lot. Hey, Corey, do they tend to wallow in this like exact same place year after year or do they change from one year to the next?
1: You know, it depends on, they're going to usually rut in the same area, but if it's an area where there's a lot of springs and seeps that can turn into ruts, uh, they might use different ruts on a day-to-day basis, and maybe only hit one. You know, they might hit a wallow for the first two days, that they start wallowing, and then they go and find another one. Or they might just, as they're going back to their bedding area every day, hit the one that's that's most convenient along the path. Uh, or if there's only one wallow in the area, there's not a lot of water, and and they don't have a lot of choices. They might hit the same wallow twice a day, every day during the rut. So it kind of depends. But, yeah, the rut's usually going to happen in the same general area, and most of the time you don't have 30 or 40 wallows that you're contending with. It's just a couple of them there on the hillside. So you can pattern them pretty well.
0: Would a wallow be uh, basically comparable to, like, what a scrape is to a whitetail? Uh, You
1: know, Somewhat similar, but you know, there's also rubs. I think a wallow um, is just where they cool off. They get heated up so they go and cool off. Uh, It's not necessarily to uh, leave scent and mark an area like maybe a scrape would be. They're rubs when an elk rubs a tree. is might be a little bit more comparable to a scrape, but even then, they might not have a, an actual line that they stick to. It's more just where they are when they decide to get aggressive and tear up a tree. So, uh, maybe probably not as as comparable to to a whitetail scrape.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know. I thought I thought there was scent involved with the wallow because I remember running across my first wallow and first thing I noticed was the smell. So that just must be elk odor in general.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I mean, anytime you're following an elk up the trail, you come to a, a rub on a tree, you come to a wallow, you come to their bedding area, especially during the rut, there's going to be a pretty strong bull elk scent that's, that's lingering there.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. You I mean, every now and again you get like an, intru- uh, an estrus whiff or like a ruddy smell in yeah. the, the woods here. But I would say it's not, it's not common. I wouldn't say, no. you know, it's, if you notice it, you're like, whoa. I, you know what I mean? Like you take note of it. Um, so that's kind of interesting thing of that. Um, Sean Polk asked, this This is cool, and I'm glad he brought this up because if we didn't cover it, we were going to get uh, hate mail. Um, over-the-counter units. And I'm sure you guys uh, have a love-hate relationship with OTC questions. Uh, but he asked, uh, when hunting over-the-counter, what do you look for in a unit? And I'm sure that's a loaded question.
4: <laughs> a lot of factors there. he left it vague for you yeah there's a lot that goes into that and primarily most all of our hunts here in Idaho are over the counter because the ones that you're having to put in for and draw for are higher success rates with higher larger bowl success rates so it's Up in the air on that one, Corey.
1: Yeah, no, I think, you know, over-the-counter, obviously the thing you're contending with is more pressure. Um, You know, and that being said, it used to be if you got a mile off the road, you didn't run into another hunter. And there's still some truth to that, but people are taking hunting a lot more seriously in the last 10 years. And going a mile off the trail, sometimes there's more people there than than there was right at the trailhead. So, you know, I think that anytime you start talking about over-the-counter what you're typically dealing with is more hunting pressure and how do you get away from that? So if I'm picking a, a brand new unit to, uh, to research and do some e-scouting on, you know, I'm looking at, I'm going to go to a, a resource like Go Hunt and just look at, even over the counter units, they have all the statistics there. So I'm going to look at uh, bull to cow ratios. I'm going to look at harvest success rates. I'm going to look at, Uh, percentage of six-point bulls that are killed or the age objective. It'll give me kind of an idea of what the age class is going to be in that unit, if there are more mature bulls or if people are just showing up and shooting a lot of raghorns. And then I'm going to look at the total number of hunters that hunt that area each year, and you can usually get that number. If you can't get it off of a, a resource like Go Hunt, you can usually get it from uh, Fishing game department and they'll usually tell you there were you know based on surveys or whatever there were 361 people in unit x this year and you can look at the size of unit x and the number of access points and kind of get a feel for there's only two access points so there. there were a lot of people at each of those trailheads or you know there's a lot of country to only have 200 other hunters spread over four weeks and you know that's that's going to maybe ease your mind a little bit on the overcrowding and the pressure side that sometimes is the biggest factor in OTC.
0: Yeah. Great advice. A lot of stuff that I normally don't think about now. Um, He also had another add on to his question and uh, I don't know how you would want to answer this, but if you had your choice of any tag in any state and unit, what would it be?
1: I'll let Donnie go first on that. (laughs) one.
4: I'm going to say a New Mexico reservation elk tag for me or a elk tag out in Nevada where I grew up. It's probably number one.
1: That's what I would have thought you would have answered. Yeah. Yeah. Nevada, you know, Johnny grew up in Ely, Nevada, and it is a mecca now for big bulls, but it's just about impossible to get a tag there. So For me, Arizona is always fun. Uh, You know, drawing a tag there takes forever, it seems like now. I drew my first tag there with three points. I drew a second tag with four points, and uh, I'm sitting on 11 or 12 points now and still haven't drawn, and I'm having to actually lower my standards on the units I apply for because it's just so hard to get a tag there. Uh, So, Arizona, you know, if I could get a tag anywhere – Uh, like through a a draw system, that would be it. If I just had unlimited financial resources and could go and buy a tag, uh, you know, hunting a place like the San Carlos Reservation in Arizona, uh, buying a landowner tag in a place like Nevada, those would be pretty high up on the list.
0: Mm, Very cool. The reservation tags are, I mean, I I don't even know. that It's probably too late in the podcast to even dive into that and how that all works. But, that's just something that I'm so unfamiliar with on so many yeah. levels. But um, you always hear about reservations having killer hunting.
1: Yeah, and I think it's just they they manage them much differently than the states manage their game. You know, states manage mostly for opportunity, and reservations have uh, you know some of them do the same, but some of them manage for trophy quality and and it really becomes a huge source of income for the the people that live there to be able to sell. Uh, these hunts and you know i correct i may be wrong but i think that they can really do kind of whatever they want on the reservation as far as how many tags they could sell how many they can you know they distribute uh and it's not bound as much by the state uh as far as you know in a draw lottery or over-the-counter situation so Mm -hmm. you know some of the reservations do really manage for trophy and they it's a very limited number of people that they let hunt there each year and that drives the price up so you know it brings in a a really good source of income for them in addition to managing for some incredible trophy quality
0: yeah interesting yeah i've heard that that they can kind of do their thing with it but i just have never had any real experience so zero that's interesting um uh one more question here chris J writes, uh, what is one thing you wish you knew or fo- focus more on when you started elk hunting?
4: Corey's waiting for me to respond. <laughs> and this is, I'm going to stress this because it is literally the most important thing that you can think about when you're elk hunting, and that is knowing what the wind is doing and where your scent is going. It is a game changer. I had hunted unsuccessfully for elk in a unit for years, and
1: how many years, Donnie?
4: So <laughs> sixteen years, <laughs> unsuccessfully for archery elk, and I just never paid attention to the wind whatsoever. Corey had a fire in his unit one year. The, one of the first years when we met, and he asked if I knew anywhere. I told him an area, and I'm like, "You're not going to kill a bull in there. They're really smart." Corey sends me a picture at 9:30 a.m. his first day in there with a bull on the ground, <laughs> and it was Ouch. literally because I never played the wind. I had no idea, no inclination that the wind was such a factor in. Being able to get close to an elk. Man. Yeah, so-
1: and, they, you know, I mean, the elk were smart in there, don't. You, the 16 years is a long time to go without killing an elk, though. But, you know, we went in there, <laughs> and, and I parked right where Donnie told me to park. And he said, I park right here. I hike up, you know, into this area. And we did the same. So I took Donnie up there the next weekend, and I think that was the first time we hunted together. And we got out of the truck, started walking up the ridge. We got up to a point, and a bull bugle. And Donnie takes off, you know, just walking down towards. Like, whoa, 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 where are you going? It's like down to the bull. And I'm like, no, 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 we gotta completely go around the mountain here and get on the other side to get the wind in our favor. And you know, just those little things that you don't pick up on watching a video. You, um, you, know, you might not really even understand how good an elk's nose is, or how how much they rely on it. Uh, so that that's definitely a huge part of it. That For me, my answer would be the effectiveness of hunting with a hunting partner. And especially if you're calling elk to have a two-person setup where you have a a caller back behind and a shooter out in front. I spent a lot of years hunting by myself, uh, being the caller and the shooter, and real success started coming once I implemented a two-person setup. You know, I went from not killing elk hardly at all to me and my partner killing elk in the first five days of every hunt we went on for several years in a row simply because we we adapted to having a caller back behind a shooter out in front who's quiet the caller's job is just bring that elk into the shooting lanes and once we started hunting like that success skyrocketed uh, enjoyment skyrocketed just that camaraderie and then also you know you you pack out one elk by yourself, you're going to be looking for a hunting partner the next time you go out, <laughs> so it, it helps there, too.
3: Hey, Corey, how far apart would you guys typically set up when you've got two people, one calling and one shooting?
1: You know, it it really goes back to the terrain you're hunting. If you're hunting open terrain, you might have to be 100 yards behind your hunting partner, even more. Uh, if you're hunting really thick stuff, you might be 10 yards behind him and, and get to watch everything really the the it comes back to what we talked about earlier if that elk can see where the calls are coming from and can't see an elk he's going to stop so as the caller you just want to make sure you're back far enough that that elk has to come into the shooting lane before he can get a visual on where you are so terrain's going to be a, a big part of determining that i would say on average we're probably 40 to 60 yards apart most of the time when we set up
3: makes sense hmm
0: interesting stuff, man. It's crazy. Like, you know, certain things. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier. There's certain things from just doing something enough and learning like the little things that work that you just have to be doing. Like for me, what changed for me with whitetails is like, when I like kind of what you said, dying, I finally, I always knew about the wind, but I didn't really understand how a big buck used the wind. And I feel like since I've done that, I've, I'm starting to become more successful and, and I'm constantly evolving and dialing it in. Then. I still feel like I'm in the middle of the evolution of my hunting, I guess. But I feel, uh, you know, it's been three, four years. I've kind of changed how I thought about wind and how a deer uses it and where I need to be to where it works for the deer and works for me, too, at the same time. I feel like that's changed a lot as far as, you know, just big buck sightings alone, that's changed a lot for me. Definitely. So, hey, I appreciate you guys doing the podcast, and I do appreciate you guys sharing as much information as you do. Um, Now hearing that it took you nine months to make a University of Elk Hunting course, and then you come on podcast for people to hear for free and uh, share your information. um, But, no, you guys are great. Um, You guys are experts in the field, so we appreciate you taking the time to talk to a bunch of idiots in Illinois.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and it really comes down to – uh, just building a bigger pie and, and we get some some kickback from other hunters that are like you're just bringing more people into the field you're just you know ruining hunting they're going to have to start restricting hunting because more and more people are going to be successful and that's what we want we want more and more people to be successful we want more and more people in the field and if we approach it the right way you know we aren't just fighting over a limited resource hopefully we're understanding conservation and we're working to build that pool you know, of resources to be bigger and bigger. And I think the more people we have that support hunting, that support elk hunting specifically, you know, the more that they're going to contribute to protect that. And the more they contribute to protect it, the more it can grow. And it's not a matter of sharing a, a finite resource with an infinite number of people. We can grow that resource. And, and I think the more people we have passionate about it, the more we're going to be able to grow it and the, the better it's going to be for everyone and especially for the for the wildlife that we're hunting.
0: For sure. Definitely. Well, yeah, that's awesome, plan. you guys. Um, I get, I'll i give you guys a second to plug anything you want to plug. Where can people find you if people need to ask questions or they want to get on the course? How, how do they do all that?
4: Donnie? So you can go to elk101.com to get the University of Elk Hunting for one which is all of our learning experiences combined and a bunch of stuff not to do and a bunch of stuff to do right. So that's I'm on Instagram as EatsleepHuntElk, and you can reach me through there.
1: Yep, we've got uh, Instagram and Facebook for Elk 101 as well as our YouTube channel, uh, and then my personal Instagram is just coreyjacobson.elk101. But, yeah, like Donnie said, the website has a ton of – we have, like, 300 articles that anybody can just go and read on elk hunting. There's all sorts of videos, and it seems like we're always giving away gear and cool stuff. So definitely check out the website and follow us on social. And if you're interested at all in elk hunting – uh, it's easier than you think to make uh, a dream a reality. So don't wait; now's the the perfect time to go.
0: I like that a lot because I agree. I'm going. I'm going mule deer hunting here. I have time of recording in a couple weeks. I'm going elk hunting next fall in Wyoming, um, and I'll link all the uh, links from your guys' website in the description of the episode so people can just click through and go straight there if they're too lazy to actually type it in the Google machine. Um, but I do plan on taking your guys's course before I go elk next fall. I'm, I'm pretty motivated to, to do it now. So, um, yeah, I appreciate the heck out of you guys. Thanks everyone. i um, on Patreon for submitting those questions. Um, also if you want to subscribe to our Patreon, the link is in our episode description as well. Um, Doug, Todd, you got anything to add? Nope. Thanks for
2: coming on guys. Thanks for all the information.
3: Yeah, you guys were, uh, it was great yeah. talking to you guys and, um, You're hoping a couple of three eighties walk in front of you this fall. Yeah,
4: that's
1: right. Or two eighties. Either one. Yep.
0: (laughs) Take what take what you can get. Sometimes. So, all right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You know what to do. Go shoot your bow. We love you.